Well, I trust you had a very blessed Christmas season, did you? You had a good time? And that your time with your family and friends was richly rewarding. For those of you who were dreaming of a white Christmas, I offer my condolences. However, we did um, enjoy some pretty spectacular days of weather. Um, I walked in early this morning. I ran into one of our fine staff members, um, Jose, who's been with us, oh my goodness, for decades and serves wonderfully well and... and um, He's Hispanic, and his English is far better than my Spanish, uh, which is almost nothing. And uh, I, said, um, I said, Jose, did you have a good Christmas? He said, yeah, it was okay. And he said, a lot of sleeping, a lot of eating. I said, my brother, that's a fabulous Christmas. <laughs> so who, can I get a witness this morning that you agree with that? Becky and I had a wonderful time with our family and friends. It's great to have my mom here. Um, and it was a unique Christmas for us, for sure. First time with a son in love and a daughter in love, and we're truly grateful. Becky and I are grateful for both of them. They are both a wonderful addition to our family. And as you know, it was the first Christmas without my wife's mother, and we know that many of you were also walking through that, uh, that first Christmas without a dear loved one. But we can truly say this, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And I know that's your testimony. Was she missed? Of course she was missed. But did it alter our gratitude for the coming of the Christ child and for the magnificent plan of salvation? Not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. If anything, it intensified our gratitude that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we might have eternal life. You know, the value of eternal life goes up exponentially when you have the investment of a loved one in heaven. How many know what I'm talking about? It makes a lot of difference. Heaven gets sweeter to you, becomes much more dear to you when you've made an investment into heaven. So more than ever before, we are thankful for Jesus. I'm going to talk out of my heart for just a few minutes, and then um, I promise we'll be out of here by 3 o'clock, okay? Is it, you good with that? Today is the last Sunday of 2015, um, and as you might suspect, I talk with lots of people, and certainly that's been the case over the last few weeks as this year draws to a close, and it's always interesting to me to see the variety of approaches that the various people take um, about going into the new year. Some people are just so glad 2015 is behind them, they're ready for anything new or anything different. Some are approaching the new year with great anticipation and even excitement over the possibilities, and they're always anxious to share that with us. And some are honest enough to say, Pastor Dan, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm dealing with fear about the new year, and I, I'm apprehensive about what I think I, I see coming. So regardless of where you find yourself in that continuum for the approach of the new year, we can all rest confidently, church, in this. The Lord is going to be with us, and the Lord is going to help us, and for that we can be glad. As most of you know by now, that we've called, we've called the church to a fast for the first week of the new year. If you haven't been here in a couple of weeks, yes, that's true. We're asking you to join us in a week of fasting, the week of, first week of the new year, January 4th through the 9th. And uh, I, I just, I want to just give a little more insight to that for just a couple of minutes. We've called this because we need the Lord more than ever before. We need the Lord in this year of election. We need the Lord in uh, this year of threatening world conditions. We need the Lord for our personal challenges. We just need the Lord. It's very simple. 
And it seems prudent to me that we set the course of the year and, and establish the, the tone of the year, if you will, to declare to the heavens that we want more than anything else to be aligned with, with the will of God, with His purposes for us. So we are consecrating the first week unto the Lord and setting it apart for His purposes. And, and I, I want to just tell you, I jotted some things down that I just want to kind of let you know. Here's what I'm asking the Lord during our week of consecration, just some of the things that are on my list. And if you want this list, great. If you, if you, want, you have your own, that's fine. But here's some things I'm saying. Lord, I want to be rid of unnecessary distractions in my life. First of all, help me to identify them. I'm not sure I always know what is distracting me. And so I'm asking, Lord, I want to be rid of unnecessary distractions. And then once you've helped me to identify them, then please help me to rid of them appropriately. And then I'm saying, Lord, I'm asking you to help me divest myself of any attachments that I've picked up along the way. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean that as we walk through life's journey... There's all kinds of things that suddenly we've picked up this and we've picked up that and we've got this baggage and that baggage and all kinds of things we've kind of added to and they've just become attached to us. Even things that look so innocent or things that look good, but ultimately they should be gone from my life if they are preventing in any way my ultimate dedication to the purposes of God. And so I'm saying, Lord, help me to divest myself of of attachments that I've picked up along the way that need to be gone. Very simply, I'm saying, Lord, cleanse me of sin. Cleanse me of sin in my life. Anybody with me on that today? And as I go into 2016, this is a phrase that I I said, Lord, oh, I want this to be the case. Give me a God-hungry heart. I want above all else for this heart of mine to be so consumed with passion for Him. Give me a God-hungry heart. And I'm praying that for us as a church. Any of these things that we're praying individually, we can pray collectively as a church. Give us a God-hungry heart. Let me desire you above all else and give me both the desire and the fortitude, Lord, to dig in deeper in my walk with, with you. And then I'm asking the Lord, Lord, we need a word from you. Because without that, we are without direction. We are without a compass. So, Lord, give us a word. Something else I'm saying, Lord, let me not be a person who has become bored with the basics of Christian living. That's a phrase that has kind of come into my, on my radar in the last few weeks. It's very easy sometimes to even read certain passages of Scripture and go, okay, read that, read, yeah, I know that, heard that in Sunday school, I know that, got that, got that, got that. And in our society, in our culture, our Western culture, our American culture, we get bored really quickly. It seems like it happens more and more often because we need this fast pace. We need to be uh, tantalized. We need to be uh, entertained, and, and we can get bored very quickly. But, folks, there are some aspects of Christian living that must never, ever be in that category of being bored. Prayer. Lord, never let me allow me to be bored with prayer. Let it, not, let it not be a situation that I'm bored, whether individually or, or corporately. So, Lord, I don't want to be bored with prayer. I don't want to be bored with the reading of your word. It's one of the basics. Lord, I want to be passionate and not bored with the things that are absolutely foundational to my Christian life. Prayer, reading of the word. I'm saying, Lord, don't let me be, be bored with being a witness for you, regardless of the cost 
Somehow we have developed a bit of a, a Christian culture that says, you know, well, we don't want to push too much with somebody else or, you know, we, we've got to be tolerant of this and that and the other thing. And I certainly don't want to reap any repercussions from, from stepping out and witnessing to someone. But you know what? We have been called, church, to be witnesses to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must be faithful to that and not bored with witnessing to other people. I hope I'm not offending you with my words, but I'm hoping you're, you're grasping that these are very, very critical things. I, you know, I, I can't help but think of my dear, sweet mother-in-law, how she was a witness to people. I, and I, I can tell you, I won't go into the depths of the story, but I know that there were people that she, in her family that she witnessed to all the way up almost into her dying day. And she was, she was persecuted, she was ridiculed, she was called all kinds of things. She was called crazy for believing in the Lord Jesus. She was called this. She was called that. But it was, she was absolutely undaunted in her desire for those people to know Jesus. She wanted them to be in heaven and not be in hell, very, very simply. And so she just said, Lord, I'm going to not give up. And it did not matter what they called her. It did not matter what they said. She was going to be a witness for Jesus. How many in the room want to be a witness for Jesus? So, Lord, help us get rid of that been there, done that mentality with our Christian walk. I've seen it all, done it all, heard it all because you know what, church? Here's what we must remember. There's always another level in God to which we can go. None of us have seen it all. None of us have done it all. None of us have heard it all. And you know what? I, and part of my prayer, and this is the part I wasn't going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I'm praying that God will surprise us this year. We never know how the Lord's going to show up. We never know what way he's going to come. Just because you lived through this renewal or that renewal and you saw this happen in the past and you saw that doesn't mean that God is obligated to come that way again. I just want to look for the Lord in whatever way he comes. And so let's be sensitive to say, Lord, we want you. I'm fascinated by the possibilities of what God just might do with a little fellowship called Bethesda if the people would make a commitment to start the year, to say, Lord, you're our first. You're the first. Pastor Des just prayed that a moment ago. You're the first. And so we're going to give it to you. Realign us, O King Eternal. Realign us to your will and to your way and to your purposes. Therefore, I'm putting out the call to the church. I'm asking you to join me, please, January 4th through the 9th. For a time of fasting and prayer. Christmas morning, uh, just two days ago, I guess on Friday this week, only my, my wife and my mother were in the house. And we had celebrated with gifts and a meal the night before with family and friends, and it was terrific. And uh, so Friday morning very much kind of felt like the morning after the night before, which had been great. But somehow on Friday morning, my, um, my heart was just particularly tender. And uh, was just sensitive to all the things that had taken place in a, in a good way. And while in my own private time of worship, I, I, I sensed the Lord drop a phrase in my heart. Just one of those flashes that came through my mind. And I'm, I'm going to give it to you in just a minute because I, I think it's a direction setter for us for the year. So I was just sitting there in my, in my little office at home and I was thinking about going into the new year and, and just wondering what the Lord might have in, have in store for us. I was thinking about the week of consecration and the season of fasting for the church, and, and this phrase popped into my head. I'm sure it's probably not original with me. Nevertheless, um, it has hit me 
as a point of direction, not only for my life, but, but I would like for it to be a point of direction for our church for this season and this year going forward. The reason I liked the phrase when it came into my head was it just seemed to say in concise words that which I'm hoping and praying for Bethesda as, as we move forward. The, the phrase would, would simply be this, that we as a church, uh, me as a person, you, all of us collectively, we would be strong in passion and firm in faith. That to me is the word for 2016. That we will be a church who is strong in passion as opposed to just nonchalantly walking into the new year. But that there is a fire within us that cannot be contained. But we're firm in faith because we have our feet on the ground and our heart toward the Lord. We know in whom we have believed and that he is able to keep that which we have committed unto him against that day. Strong in passion, firm in faith. Say it with me. Strong in passion. That was marginal. Do it again. There we go. And I guess my thoughts went like this as I was sitting there on Friday morning. Why does that seem so important? Because it's because we have answered the question, and we are saying clearly by being strong in passion and firm in faith, we've answered the question from an old hymn written by a gal by the name of Francis Havergal. Years ago, I did a series of, of uh, uh, recordings and, on various hymns, and Frances Havergal was many of her hymns, less known to some of us, was one I was assigned to do some, uh, some hymns, and she has a song called, Who is on the Lord's Side? And so that's the question that comes from that hymn. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers other lives to bring? Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him will go? And the refrain says, by thy call of mercy, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. And I just have to ask this morning, is there anybody in the room ready to say, I'm on the Lord's side? Who's on the Lord's side with me? Put your hands together and bless the Lord. Lord, we're on your side. So I'm just simply asking, church, that you with us, that we go into 2016 with a sense of anticipation for what the Lord is going to do, even if he surprises us. I have no idea what that means. I'm just looking forward to, for his, to his presence and whatever it is he is going to do. And I'm praying that as a church, we, we reach that moment where we can say this, God has spoken, so let the church say amen. You're not hearing me at all this morning. Are you eating too much ham or something, turkey? God has spoken, so let the church say amen. I'm trying to communicate my heart to you today that I so want us to dig in with our walk with God, dig in as a church as we go into this new year having no idea what all it holds, that we say, Lord, we're on your side. And whatever your will, whatever you say to us, we're going to follow you, Lord, wherever you will lead us because we're on the Lord's side. God has spoken, and so let the church say, so be it. Let the church say amen. None of that's the message. Let's get to the message now. That was all just free extra thrown in this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Job 19 for just a few minutes. Job 19. When we consider this man Job, we need to understand this is not just a, a, a fictional story. This is an actual person who actually lived. 
probably one of the most powerful statements that comes from the circumstances about Job, and you know the story. One of the most powerful overriding statements and maybe the loudest message to us from this book is this. In one day, our lives can change. That's what happened to Job. In one day, your life can change. Some of you have literally experienced that. In one day, everything can change around you. It may be the day that you are served with divorce papers when you thought everything was okay. It may be the day a car accident takes place that profoundly affects either your life or that of someone that you, that you love. It could be that one visit to the doctor when, when he or she has to say the words to you that you know, the, the news here is not good. It can happen in a day, and it is Job is the one who speaks to us about this. Because we know in one day, his health, his marriage, his children, his property, everything changes. Everything was gone in a day. And the reality is this, that tomorrow could be an absolutely different reality for any, any one of us in this place because we don't know what 2016 holds. All the props are removed from Job. Everything's taken from him. All the circumstances of his life in chapters 1 through 42 are incredibly interesting. And if your Bible is one of those Bibles that gives you the dates of the occurrences of Scripture, then you, you know how, how short the time span was of these devastating circumstances. I've, we've mentioned before that so often we read Scripture and, and we go from one chapter to the next, and the truth is it was 100 years or a much longer period of time. This is the opposite situation. If you look at the dates of what happened, in fact, most historians believe that his many trials and his suffering all took place in a period of time less than a year. And there are many references also in the book of Job to, to in these months or in these weeks. So he literally quantifies the, the period of time for us, which tends to validate the theory that this all happened in a short period of time. However, the length of time of his problems and his trials is less of the story here than the fact that none of us are exempt from the possibility of anything happening to us tomorrow. That's why, church, our hope is not in our job. Our hope is not in people. Our hope is not in horses and chariots or the things that we have, but our hope is in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the one who created the heavens and the earth. And here's one of the most interesting parts of this narrative that I just kind of want to draw your attention to for a minute. This change in the life of Job, these devastating circumstances, they, they all take place because of a conversation that took place between God and Satan. Now, of all the focus that we give today on the subject of suffering, of all the books that are written on the subject of, of suffering and how to deal with suffering, you never hear anyone say that they are suffering because of a conversation between God and Satan. Nobody, nobody ever says that, and yet that's the one that's in the Bible. So in the first chapter of Job, we see God is meeting with the angels, and, and suddenly Satan bursts in on the scene, and, and God begins to brag about Job and boast about Job and what a fine man. He begins to say there's a man who walks upright and is, and is righteous. And then, of course, Satan begins his challenge. And the crux of the book of Job is this, that man, and the statement that, that uh, Satan's trying to make is that man will only serve God for what God does for them, for him. That's the blasphemy of Satan against your life. 
That you will only serve God for what God is doing for you. That's the only reason why you would serve God or what he has done or will do for you. And so that's how the book of Job starts. And it all starts from a conversation. And, you know, as you read it, it kind of makes you wonder. I wonder if my name ever comes up. I wonder if your name ever comes up in conversation in heaven. I wonder if there's ever a, a conversation where God says to Satan, look at Josh. Or maybe says, no, 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 don't look at Josh. Let me show you some others, <laughs> okay? Who knows? But uh, what we do know is this, that Job had a wonderful bio in heaven because God said he's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless. He uh, he's, has complete integrity. He fears God and he stays away from evil. And, and here's what we understand about this. Sometimes what our bio is and what we think is not always the same. I know I've mentioned that recently quite a bit. But the important thing is, what does God think about us? Amen to that? Not even what you think of yourself. Not even what your mama thinks or your grandma thinks. What matters most is what does God think of you. Reminds me a bit of the church in the book of Revelation, Laodicea, where they said, we are rich and in need of, of nothing. But God said, that's not the bio that we have on you here in heaven. In fact, heaven's bio on you says that, that, that you have nothing and that you are in need of everything and that you are, are lukewarm. So put, put whatever on your PR packet that you want to say. Advertise yourself whatever way you want to. What really matters is, is what God says. And it's interesting to, to, to see what we think about ourselves and what that reality is when we really hit a spiritual battle and how quickly uh, things can change when we get tested. So God's bio on Job caused him to say to Satan, this man is one of my prizes. And then in the next 41 chapters, we see something happen to him. We see all of these devastating things take place. But what we see is a real man and how a real man responds. And by real, I'm not talking about macho. I'm talking about someone who's a real person, who is honest, transparent, open, if not vulnerable. I don't know about you, but I like real people. Don't you? Don't you like real people? Not particularly impressed with people who, who try to put on airs or try to mask uh, the reality of who they are by over-spiritualizing every sentence. You've, you've probably met those folks, and they, have to, they can't say anything without saying, thank you, Jesus, every other phrase, you know. And that's fine. I'm glad they're thankful. But so many people, they're, they're not real. And, and you know, here's what I've discovered. The longer I have walked with God and, and met so many people, the more godly a person comes, becomes, the more real they become. Have you noticed that? The more godly they are, the more real they are. Because godly people lose any sense of facade or, or, pre or pretense. And in studying Job, we see that he's a real man. And how do we know that? Because at times he gets upset. I'm actually glad he got upset. I don't think it would have been reality when after losing his children, he would have come up with that one verse that says, well, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because you just can't read verse 21 without reading verse 20. Verse 20 says this of the first chapter. Job ripped his clothes. He shaved his head. He fell on the ground. And then he said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Any real man or any real woman will worship him, but you will also have those moments when you want to rip your clothes and, and shave your head and, and fall on the ground. And it's in those times of suffering when the real human, human nature comes out, and those are appropriate reactions in most cases. But when it's all said and done, the amazing thing that took place with Job, it's so stunning to me. 
is that something wells up inside of him. And I am so thankful that for the follower of Christ, for the person who believes Jesus, there is something within. Aren't you glad for the spirit that dwells within? Something inside that says, Lord, those may be my human reactions. That may be the truth about the way I feel about this situation. I'm overwhelmed with grief. I don't understand why this has happened. Everything looks dark. Every place I put my eye looks dark to me. But I can still find it within me to say, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Because it's something deep within the heart of the believer. And I can't even tell you where that comes from, but I've seen it time after time. One of the finest Christian writers of all time is C.S. Lewis, I refer to often. Probably the most raw of all of his books is entitled, A Grief Observed. It's a book of his reflections on the experience of bereavement following the death of his wife, Joy Davidman, which took place in 1960. He didn't even expect the book to be put into print. The fact is, the first time it was put into print, he did it under a pseudonym, uh, N.W. Clerk, so as to protect his own identity because the book was so filled with raw emotion. It was, for him, it was his head being shaved. It was his ripping of his clothes. It was his falling on the ground. It was C.S. Lewis's Job journey, if you will. So listen to these words when he says this. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, I'm not in danger of ceasing to believe in God when joy died. The real danger that is in my heart is coming to believe such dreadful things about God. The conclusion that I fear is not, so there is no God, but rather, so that's what you're really like. And he says, I realize that all of us are equally bankrupt, but some of us haven't declared it yet. All of us are equally bankrupt, but some of us have not declared it yet. We are all bankrupt, but some of us have not declared it yet. And for Job, it appears to be in our chapter 19 that we're going to go through quickly in just a moment, that he finally realizes and declares, you know what, I am bankrupt, and I do not know what to do. I have no idea what to do. We're going to read this chapter and see if there's not something here that will help us going into 2016, particularly for those of us in the room today who have declared spiritual bankruptcy. And I am so thankful to present the word to you today because, dear ones, there is always hope in Jesus Christ, always hope. Job chapter 19, starting with verse 6. But it is God who has wronged me, capturing me in his net. Verse 7, I cry out help, but no one answers me. I protest, but there is no justice. What Job is saying is that he feels like his prayers are not being answered. Have you ever felt that, anybody in the room? Where's the honest people? Have you not ever prayed and felt like the heavens are brass and his prayers were not being answered? Verse 8, God has blocked my way, so I cannot move. He has plunged my path into darkness. He's not talking about Satan. He's talking about God. Now, we love all of our meetings where we, we bind Satan and we bind this and, and we bind that. And the problem is, what do you do if the problem isn't coming from Satan, but rather from God? Because when God is doing it, you can't bind him. And he's saying, Job is saying, everything is dark for me. I can't even tell you what tomorrow holds what my path of darkness is going to be. Verse 9, he has stripped me of my honor 
and remove the crown from my head. All of my trophies are gone. All the plaques, all the recognition I've had from all the people who matter, it's all gone. Verse 10, he has demolished me on every side, and I am finished. What's interesting is in the early part, in chapter 1, I believe, is when he says that Satan accuses God. You've built a hedge of protection around him. You can't get to him. And so what he's saying here, he's demolished me on every side, and I am finished. He has uprooted my hope like a fallen tree. His fury burns against me. He, he counts me as an enemy. I don't even feel like a son. I don't even feel like I'm part of God's family. Verse 12, his troops advance, meaning the angels, the, the hosts of God. They build up roads to attack me. They camp all around my tent. So instead of protecting me, it's as though God has turned them loose on me. My relatives stay far away, and my friends have turned against me. Essentially, he's saying, even the church folk won't talk to me anymore. My family is gone, and my close friends have forgotten me. You've heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water. Job is saying, forget it. It's not true. The family's gone. Friends have forgotten me. My servants and maids consider me a stranger, and I'm like a, a foreigner to them. <laughs> he's saying, not only my friends are gone, not only are my relatives had they filmed, but even the people on my payroll won't answer me anymore. And I sign their checks. Verse 16, when I call my servant, he doesn't come. I have to plead with my own servant to come. It says, I call him on his cell phone, and all I get is voicemail. I added that part. That's not in your Bible, probably. The guy won't even answer his cell phone. So I guess I'm just going to have to talk to my wife. A fat chance, because look at the next verse, 17. My breath is repulsive to my wife. I'm rejected by my own family. Even young children despise me. When I stand to speak, they turn their backs on me. He has now talked about every possible people group within his life, or single group within his life. And understand what he just said here in verse 18 about the children not even paying attention to him. He's saying that even in his pain and suffering, it has broken through Jewish tradition. He's saying that because when even the young are supposed to honor the old, that was Jewish tradition. When he walks by the children, then they turn away and they snicker and laugh at him. Verse 19, my close friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. Every person in his life, relatives, family, servants, children, everyone's turned against him. I have been reduced to skin and bones and have escaped by the skin of my teeth. That's a phrase we know in our culture. And some historians say that that phrase actually means probably that his teeth have fallen out and that the skins of his teeth, he's referring that all he has is his gums left. And so listen now to this, verse 21. Have mercy on me, my friends. Have mercy, for the hand of God has struck me. Everything's gone. You know what, church? Sometimes God will strip everything away to bring us face to face with him. If you have ever gone through a time of true brokenness in God, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's exactly what happens. Or sometimes we have allowed attachments or other affections to be stirred within us that has removed us from being people of passion for Christ. It's entirely possible that God will have to remove everything from your life so that you have nothing left but Him. 
Verse 22. Must you also persecute me like God does, speaking to his friends? Haven't you chewed me up enough? Oh, that my words could be recorded. Oh, that they could be inscribed on a monument. I'm going to go, they are recorded. Here we are in 2016 reading them. Verse 24, they're carved with an iron chisel and filled with lead engraved forever in the rock. And then the moment comes. Everything's gone from within him. And I have a strange suspicion there are plenty of people in the room this morning, you feel like I have just read your story. Everything's gone. His body's racked with pain. His children are dead. He's lost it all. And I do not know where this comes from, and I do not know how this happened. All I can tell you is that I believe this with every fiber of my being. As I said a moment ago, that deep within the child of God is this place that nothing else can touch. And I am personally so grateful for it. And certainly the older I get, the more life journey I have, I am so grateful that there is a place within me that nothing else can touch. Let everything else happen. Nothing can move it. Nothing can destroy it. Deep within the child of God, something rises up that gives you just enough voice to say in the midst of the most devastating circumstances, verse 25, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand upon the earth at last. It's one of the suddenlies that takes place in Scripture. We refer to that word sometimes as serendipitous, which means it's a surprise along the way. Nothing that we've read in this chapter of gloom and doom prepared us for that moment of verse 25. And child of God, I want you to know this morning that though you may be in the darkest place you have ever experienced in your life, you may not even want to go into 2016. But I want to remind you this morning, before you walk out of this place, I want you to know that deep inside of you can rise up something and give you just what you need to go on and go on into the next year that God has for you. The suddenly can happen for you, even when you're getting an MRI. The, the doctor says, there's a spot and we see something. And the thoughts are very real. You're going to think, is it cancer? Uh, how long do I have? Well, will I live to see my kids get married. But suddenly can happen for you, even in a moment like that, that rises up within the heart of a child of God that says, oh, but I know my Redeemer lives. And God with his omnipotence puts certainty within you when all around you is uncertainty. I too know what it is to not be able to look to the, my right or to my left and feel like I have any clue what I'm going to do or where I'm going to go. Everything looks dark around us, but God is able to build within you a certainty when all around you is uncertainty, when you don't even know what tomorrow holds. There is an I know deep inside your being, and it seems to happen. I don't know why it's this way, but it seems to happen when you're in the condition of not being able to control any of the circumstances of your life. You can't control the economy. You can't control what's going to happen on Wall Street. But that's okay, because the one thing you do know is that your Redeemer lives. I love the way Job makes it personal when he says, my Redeemer lives. Because here's what he's essentially, here's the message he's giving us in all of that. He's saying, I didn't get this from my parents. This wellspring within me, I didn't get it from my relatives. I didn't get it from a denomination. He says, I got this from God. This thing is real to me. My Redeemer lives. 
So to the generation coming up behind me, do not count on the experience of your parents or your grandparents, as wonderful as it may have been or is, because if that is your story, then I'm afraid, dear one, you have only a Christian cultural understanding of God. You may have been raised in church. You may know about Christ. You may know about church. You may know about the Bible. You may have wonderfully godly parents or grandparents, but their experience in God is valid for them. Simply having knowledge of the Christian culture will not stand in the test of time, nor will it serve you in the day of trouble. You must have your own experience of being regenerated by the Spirit of God. Just because mom and dad are born again does not mean that you are, dear one. Job said it because he understood it very well. He said this, it's my experience. He says, my Redeemer lives. Anybody with me this morning at all? Then I love this as I'm drawn to a close here. Jordash, if you want to come in just a second. Not only did he say, my Redeemer lives, he says, my Redeemer. He could have used any other word, church. He could have used Jehovah. He could have used Yahweh. He could have used God. He could have used Elohim. But he chooses Redeemer. And that word, which in the Hebrew is goel, means kinsman or the closest person to you. Not only is it the closest person to you, but it's also the closest one who can help you out of any situation. It's what kinsman means, or goel in the Hebrew. And Job understood the word, and he knew exactly what he meant. I think he was deliberate and intentional in saying, my Redeemer lives. And in his suddenly moment, something rises up within him, and he declared, my goel is alive. His Redeemer, his kinsman Redeemer was alive and lives forever. And then he says this. He says, my Redeemer lives. He says, my Redeemer lives. And we got to look at the last one. He says, my Redeemer lives because living changes everything. Brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, never forget That when you talk about other religions, you must use a certain kind of verb. You must use the verb that's in the past tense. When it comes to other religions, you will of necessity need to use a verb that ends with ED. You can say, Muhammad lived. Muhammad walked. You can say whatever you want to say about Buddha and Confucius and all the others. But what you say about them, it's what they did in the past tense. But when it comes to Jesus... To the one who is wonderful, to the one who is unique, you will of necessity need to change that verb. You no longer use a past tense verb that ends in ed. You need to change that to a present tense verb that ends in s. Because to speak the truth about this wonderful and unique Jesus, you will have to say, Jesus lives and he walks with me and he talks with me. Jesus heals, he saves, he delivers, he answers prayer because my Redeemer lives. Somebody say hallelujah in this house today. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living no matter whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy and I hear his voice of cheer. And because he is my kinsman redeemer, because he is my goel, just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. Somebody say hallelujah. 
So in the midst of Job's worst season of his life, in the midst of his hardest time, in his darkest hour, everything gone wrong, he has a suddenly moment. A suddenly because something was deep inside of him that rises up and it shouts, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. I am not a golfer. I have nothing at all to do with that demonic sport whatsoever. But I have learned this through a little study, that originally the golf ball was smooth like a ping pong ball. And then somebody discovered that the more you played and the more you dented the thing up, the further it would go. And the more dents that were on the ball, the longer it would fly. So then the manufacturers started putting dents in the ball so that the ball would fly even further. And when I read that and looked at that, that came across my computer this week, I thought, man, when you look at me, I got dents. Anybody got dents in the room today? Am I the only one? I got dents. I'm sure you feel like you got dents too. But here's what I want us to know. Those dents, dear friend, are not holding you back. Those dents are sending you forward. Say, you know what? I wouldn't even be able to do this if it were not for my kinsman redeemer. God is the one sending me to the place that I need to be. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. I need to hear a shout of hallelujah in this house this morning. Stand to your feet, everyone. Oh, Lord, we lift our hands before you. We thank you, Lord, as we can release 2015 to you and going on to this next year, that no matter what the trials have been, no matter what the circumstances have been, we can say of, assur of assurance, we know that our Redeemer lives. Nothing can shake that. It is so deep within us. Let the trials come. Let the circumstances come. Whatever it is, Lord, we know this to be true, that our Redeemer lives. And so look out, 2016. Here we come, and we're going to be strong in passion, and we're going to be firm in faith because our Redeemer lives. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Prayer team, if you can come quickly, please. I just have to put out the appeal. If there's anyone in the house today who says, what are you talking about? What do you mean, Redeemer? I just want you to know that there is a, there's a relationship that you can have with God Almighty through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. If you simply come and ask Him to forgive you for your sin, and that you believe in your heart that Christ died for you, and you confess, He will absolutely make you a brand new person today. I was talking a moment ago. You need to be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I ask you to step out when we sing in just a second. Step out and let these folks pray with you today. If that's who you are, if it's the first time for you, great. We are going to rejoice along with the angels today. I also know that there are those who are in a Job-like season. And they are looking for their suddenly moment. Some of you this morning walked in with your head so down because of whatever has happened, circumstances, who knows what it was, and you are in a Job-like season. And as I was reading that passage, you thought it was you, and you're saying, I need that suddenly moment. Pastor Dan, prayer warrior today, help me find that place deep within me where something rises up, and I want that to be resonating within me that I know my Redeemer lives. When we sing in just a moment, I want you to step out from where you are and let someone just pray for you in the mighty name of Jesus. Some of you simply want God's grace for the coming year. Let someone pray with you as we sing. Come on, step out right now as we